Our text this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 19, continuing our study in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. Here is the word of the Lord. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and Yahweh brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against an innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, as Yahweh lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we praise you for uh, your Holy Spirit who opens our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive it. And we pray that you would do just that today, that we would hear the message of this portion of your word and that I would be an articulate, capable deliverer of it. Cause me to forget everything that's an error or anything that's not helpful. Deliver us all from distraction and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. People of God, among all the Ten Commandments, the one that may be the most overlooked is the tenth. Thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. That that may be the one we take the most lightly, the one we're most likely to dismiss or to forget. Sure, the first five commandments are vital. I think we would all, Christians would say, yes, those are, those are critical. They all have to do with God's order and authority and God's structuring of society. Then in the second five, well, we're commend, uh, c- commanded not to murder. We're forbidden to uh, commit adultery or to steal or to bear false witness. These are all very important prohibitions. In fact, all of these behaviors prohibited in the second five commandments are all destructive. They're all deadly. They're all covenant-breaking behaviors. But then the 10th commandment, I mean, do we just need to have 10 to just make it an even number? Why do we have the, the commandment not to covet? How important can that be? How bad can it be to just want something that someone else has? To see your neighbor Uh, enjoying something that you don't possess, and then to wish that you had it or to pine for it or to dream about it. I mean, everyone has wants and desires, right? Isn't covetousness sort of like a victimless crime? It's just one of those things that happens inside your heart. It's a private sin and nobody ever has to know about it. Well, that may sound kind of reasonable and it may sound kind of rational. The problem is everything I just said is a lie. It never stays inside. It never stays hidden. It never stays private or secret. Covetousness reveals itself in all manner of ugly, destructive ways. 
Covetousness, let's define it first. Covetousness is longing for and fixating upon something that is not yours, something that may be forbidden to you, such as another person's spouse, or it may be something God has prohibited, or something that God just hasn't given you, something he's uh, making you work for or, or making you wait for. It's, it's something that's not yours for whatever reason. Covetousness is longing for something that doesn't belong to you presently and may never belong to you. So covetousness is being born with a XY chromosome and longing to be a woman. I'm sorry, you will never, it will never work out for you. It will never, it will never happen. Be content with what God gave you and how God created you. Covetousness is longing for something that may never happen or will not happen. If you're a woman married to this man with these kids, you may not pine for, you may not long for, you may not become despondent because you're not married to that man with those kids. And there are many other examples of ways that we can think of covetousness working its way out in lives. The Bible testifies that covetousness unchecked that is, never dealt with the right way in confession and repentance before God. Covetousness, unchecked, never stays private. It never remains personal and internal. James asks in his epistle, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come for your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Covetousness works its way out into warfare. Covetousness invariably leads to contentiousness. And so you see why God in his infinite wisdom forbids covetousness in his 10 commandments. Covetousness leads to strife, to disorder, to theft, and eventually murder. There's a species of covetousness. If, if covetousness is a heading, you could say that perhaps um, the, uh, there, are, there are various forms that it takes. And one of the species of covetousness uh, that we're dealing with in 1 Samuel is envy. Envy obsesses not over the material blessings that another person has, but obsesses over the person himself or herself. Envy focuses on what the person, uh, not only what the person has, but, but the person himself who has what I don't have. And Envy says, we don't have the same things. So that means life is unfair. That means God is unfair. God has given them something he hasn't given me. And by the way, they don't deserve it. I deserve it. And the only way that justice can be served here is that if the other person is hurt, that, that would just kind of even things out. If the other person were hurt or lost the thing that they have that I don't have, then I would be happy. Or the thing has to be given to me. But if I can't have it, then it has to be broken so nobody can have it. Envy is never satisfied unless someone is hurt. I'm reading a great book on the history of liberalism titled simply Leftism by Eric Von Leden. I'm not ready to recommend it yet. I'm, I'm about a quarter of the way into it, but it's just so brilliant. And he demonstrates how culture-destroying revolutions like the French Revolution or the Bo Bolshevik Revolution, these culture-destroying revolutions are grounded in envy and covetousness. 
they, they're on the outside, they're packaged as these, these attempts to relieve hardship and to, and to make all men equal. But that's not what they're about. They're more about punishing those who have wealth, punishing those who have status. They, they always promote the kind of equality that doesn't raise anybody up, but the kind of equality that equalizes everybody downward, brings everything to nothing. Uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote, envy is the great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. Rather than have anyone happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. And that's the goal of envy, just to make sure we're all miserable together. That's why all the revolutions of the past 200 years have accomplished nothing but misery. And we haven't learned any lessons because we keep trying to run the same plays over and over, and we keep stoking the flames of envy and covetousness. We continue to see it because envy is an ancient human defect. Going back to our earliest history, we see envy at work in Cain's life with his sidelong glances at Abel's worship and Abel's acceptance before God is noxious in, in the nostrils of Cain. This envy of his brother leads to rivalry and conflict. Of course, God calls him to repent. God calls Cain to stop in his tracks, but he doesn't. And Cain's envy leads to hatred, leads to murder. We also see envy at work in Joseph's brothers. When God had clearly set his favor on Joseph, it was established Joseph would be the leader. Joseph would be the superior among his brothers. Uh, Joseph's brothers intend to murder him until, until Judah steps in and convinces them, well, let's just sell him into slavery and tell dad that he's dead, which is just one degree better than, than killing him. But they want to destroy, David, uh, sorry, destroy Joseph's life because they don't like his position, the position that God has put him in over them. And so we keep seeing it over and over. In our study of 1 Samuel, Saul is the envious man. Saul's wicked envy is ignited anytime someone does something better than him. First, it was his son, Jonathan, who went out and initiated battle against the Philistines. Now it's David who has gone out on multiple occasions, and David has been successful in warfare. And the young women come out with tambourines singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that gets under Saul's skin. He's not happy with David because he's envious of David. David is getting the acclaim and the praise and Saul is sitting at home feeling very sorry for himself, full of envy for the victories that God has given David. Well, over the last few chapters, we've seen Saul's attitude decline from impenitence to moodiness to uh, murderous. That's, that's the decline. And one of the many influences running rampant in his mind and heart is his fixation on David and his envy toward David. And so as chapter 19 opens, Saul gathers all of his servants, including his own son, Jonathan, and he plots together with his servants to kill David. Jonathan leaves the meeting immediately and he goes and tells David, he warns him that my father seeks to kill you and I'm going to go talk to him about you, but I, you need to know that if this doesn't go right, you need to be ready to jump on a donkey and get out of here. You need to go far away. And so David has a, uh, uh, an opportunity now to listen closely. Jonathan calls David to hide in a place where, where he can be an earshot of his conversation. Jonathan and Saul come together to talk, and David can hear and see 
Saul's response. It's not enough for David to just know that Saul's going to be okay with him, that Jonathan has worked everything out. David has to see and hear it for himself, and Jonathan allows him that opportunity. And so as David sits in hiding, he can see Saul's uh, body language go from wild and animated like, David, where's David? Have you heard of David? What's going on? Why are you sticking up for David? Am I not your own father? Don't you love me more than David? And he sees Saul's demeanor eventually slow down as Jonathan said, look, dad, you rejoiced over David. You were really happy with David. And by the way, where has David ever sinned against you? Can you name one time that David has sinned against you? And you've been mean. You've been unkind. You've been brutal. You've been hateful toward David. You've thrown spears at David. And he's never sinned against you. And so David, in hiding, can see Saul's demeanor kind of collapse and, and his, his hatred melt as Jonathan speaks peace to his father, he, he, Saul goes from this wild rage to peacefulness. And then David can see them, whether they embraced or shook hands, they left on good terms. And he likely hears the vow, David hears the vow that Saul makes before God. Saul says, as Yahweh lives, he shall not be killed. Well, uh, David, David is safe for now, but not for long because Saul is going to Saul is going to break that, that, that covenant. He's going to break that vow. He's going to become more consistently evil. And yet, here's another opportunity. How many chances does Saul have to repent? Here God is sending Jonathan to Saul one more time to say, get it right, just confess your sin, just repent. Saul has jumped overboard. Saul is drowning. And yet God continually throws him life preservers and Saul keeps pushing him away time after time after time. He'd rather drown in rebellion than accept any of these offers of grace. So while he vows now that he's not going to kill David, this, this peace is very short-lived. So we pick up in verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from Yahweh came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Well, that didn't last long, did it? It didn't last long for Saul's promise to turn into another lie. Notice David sits with a lyre in his hand. He plays music with his hand while Saul sits around the house with a spear in his hand. You imagine dad sitting around with like a revolver just on his lap, you know, just waiting for something to happen, waiting for something to go wrong to <laughs> irritate him or make him mad. God anointed Saul so that he would go fight the Philistines. That was why he was anointed. That's why he was called to be king, so that he would be Israel's giant to go fight the Philistines. And he's refused to do it. He isn't man enough to go out onto the battlefield and fight God's enemies. But he does turn his house into a battlefield. He can do that. This is something we see all the time with immature men. The real battlefield is out there. And we say, go fight, go work, go produce, go fight back the curse, go crush the serpent's head, go do it. But that's too tough and the stakes are too high and the possibility of failure is too terrifying. So we're not gonna go out to the battlefield that we've been called to fight on, 
but we can stay home and pick fights with easier targets. We can stay home and declare war on our wives or declare war on our kids because they're easier to control, at least for a while, until they get uh, uh, fed up and then, and then we have the war that we were asking for. Um, there are two images of masculinity here in these chapters. In Saul, there's that toxic, destructive, excuse-making, prideful masculinity of Adam and Cain, which capitulate to the real threat. They, they let the serpent and the bear and the lion trample all over the garden. They let them have their way, and then they turn their anger toward the sheep. Saul doesn't throw spears at Goliath. Saul throws spears at David. He tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, as we'll see in the next chapter. Saul turns his attention toward the sheep and lets the serpent run rampant. But in David, there's this humble strength and this courageous masculinity, the masculinity of Jesus who takes responsibility, who takes initiative against the lion and the bear and the serpent. And David doesn't aim his spear at the sheep. He doesn't aim his sling at the sheep. He protects the sheep. There are two examples and two images there. There's also an important point to establish here about Saul's envious treatment of David. Saul doesn't hate David, and Saul doesn't want to kill David because David is behaving wickedly. And, th and this is a theme. Cain didn't kill Abel out of some righteous anger that, that Abel was doing something evil. Joseph's brothers don't throw him in a pit and tell Jacob that he's dead because Joseph was a blasphemer. That's not why. And when Jesus comes, Jesus is not hated by the Pharisees because he's a thief or because he's a fornicator. Jesus is not. In each case, what makes the envious burn in their hatred toward those that they're targeting? What is it? It's the righteousness of God evident in them. It's the righteousness of the person they despise. What makes Saul mad over and over and over? It's not David's sins. It's David's victories over the enemies of God. David is persecuted for righteousness' sake. And of course, the same pattern shows up in Jesus' ministry. Every time Jesus has victory over the demons, every time Jesus heals someone or raises the dead, every time Jesus fights back death or corruption, the Pharisees get stirred up and angry and they plot against him. They, they show their hatred and it builds up until they conspire to put Jesus to death. The Pharisees want to pin Jesus just as Saul wants to pin David to the wall in this text, the Pharisees want to pin Jesus. They succeed for a moment until Jesus uh, rises again from the dead, but they, they crucify him, they pin him. The attitude is the same. Saul wants to pin David. He wants to crucify David and kill him for his good works because Saul is evil. And so know that when you're being persecuted like this and when you're raising people's anger for your righteousness and just doing what God says, you're, you're in very good company. You are, you are being persecuted for righteousness and Jesus says when that happens, you need to rejoice. You need to be really, really happy because uh, that shows whose side you're on. Verse 11, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. 
And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? At the beginning of this chapter, Jonathan helps David uh, escape from his father's wrath and Jonathan makes a peace with, with Saul. Now, now his wife, David's wife, uh, who is Saul's daughter, helps him escape from her father. Later on, Samuel is going to protect David from Saul. Um, Saul was like a son to Samuel, remember from the earlier chapters. So carrying over from last week, we see how in dealing with an abusive man like Saul, you get away, you get out, but that's not enough. You don't, just, you don't just run away. You make an appeal to someone who can see what's going on. You need good counselors and good advisors. And all three of these advisors help David in their own way. Saul, uh, Saul's wrath is seen by other people. Saul's irrational behavior is seen by other people. David doesn't have to rely on his own account, on his own feelings about the situation. There are other men and women who see what's going on and they are his counselors. So David knows that Saul is out for murder again. And so here his wife, Michal, helps by deceiving Saul and buying David some time to get away. She helps David escape out the window. And then she does that, uh, that Ferris Bueller thing where she puts a idol in the bed, you know, that's a eighties kid reference, I guess. But, uh, you know, the, uh, he puts a dummy in the bed so he doesn't have to go to school or mom thinks he's in bed sick. Uh, well, she does that. She puts, a, she puts an idol in the bed. She puts a, uh, a goat hair rug over the head, which I don't know what that says about David's hairdo, that that was enough to fool <laughs> the messengers. And she covers him up. And when Saul's messengers come to kill David, she says, oh, you can't kill him now. He's sick. <laughs> which there's so many questions about this. What kind of men is Saul hiring <laughs> that they think, oh, okay, we'll come back later when he's feeling better. <clears throat> and the burning question for me is, wait a minute, what is she doing with an idol? I mean, that's the question. Why does she have an idol in the house? Where did that come from? Is there idol worship going on in Saul's house by Saul's own daughter? At any rate, whatever this, this ruse is it buys David enough time to slip away. And when the guys go back to Saul, it said, oh, we can't, we can't bring him. He's sick. And Saul says, go down there and drag him up here on his bed and bring him up here so we can deal with him. Um, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we've spent enough time on holy deception in the past. So we, we don't need to spend a great deal of time on it now. But here's another example. It just is the spirit deceived, I'm sorry, the, the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. So, so now one of the most useful weapons in the bride's arsenal in her war against the serpent is deception. God has given the bride the, the tool of deception in her warfare against the serpent, like the Hebrew midwives who righteously deceive Pharaoh. Remember, the Hebrew midwives are told to, uh, to kill all the boys 
born to Hebrew women. And what did the midwife say? We can't kill the male children like you told us to because the Hebrew women have their babies before we can get there. And Pharaoh buys that. Rahab righteously deceived the Jericho Gestapo and hid the Hebrew spies from them. Jael righteously deceives Sisera and she gives him hospitality. She gives him milk and she gives him a bed before she staples his head to the carpet there. Women especially cannot defeat the serpent by brute force, but they can trick him. And when they do, it's a wonderful, glorious thing. The serpent doesn't deserve the truth because he's going to abuse the truth and he's going to use it to destroy lives and he's gonna use it to work on righteousness and make war on the seed of the woman. And so to protect the holy seed, the woman deceives the serpent and gives him what's coming to him. So Michal stands in a long tradition of wily, righteous women. And she deceives her own father who is behaving very much like the serpent so that her husband can escape. Now, this is another one of those densely layered passages where we hear echoes of many other events. David's escape from Saul's house in one subtle way is like another Passover, just as the escape from Egypt was at night. So David's escape from Saul's house is, is at night. His deliverance is at night. There's a sacrificial substitute in the Passover. It was the blood of the lamb. So now we have the skin of a goat covering for David. And if David is escaping the house of Saul, the way that Israel escaped Egypt, that means Saul must be acting like another Pharaoh. Another sharper parallel though, is Jacob's escape from the house of Laban. We've already compared Saul to Laban last week when Saul was messing around with David and not fulfilling his promise to give David his daughter. Remember last week, there was an older daughter who was supposed to be David's wife and that didn't, that didn't work out. Saul messed around and kept that wife from David and so David marries the younger. So we've already seen some of Laban's manipulation evident in Saul, but here now we see that come to, uh, to uh, fuller relief in the way that uh, David escapes just like Jacob escapes uh, uh, Saul pursues like Laban pursues. And when Saul catches up with, with uh, his, his wife, just like Laban catches up with Rachel, remember how Rachel deceived Laban? It was with the teraphim. It was with the household idols. Laban wanted his household idols back, but Rachel was sitting on them, which is incredibly insulting for household gods. Have a woman sit on you. And she even says, I can't get up because it's my time of the month. And so the, the idols are defamed and blasphemed and shamed in this picture. Here, we have another deception with a household idol. As Michal covers for David, just as Rachel covered for her husband, Michal covers for David against her father's wickedness. And just as Laban says at the end of all this, why are you deceiving me? Why are you messing with me like this? So Saul repeats the same thing. Saul says, why are you deceiving me and sending my enemy away so that he escapes? So these parallels show us that the God's people remember their history. This is how you treat a Pharaoh. This is how you treat a Laban. And we see also that Saul is squarely in the category of these fools. And we don't make the mistake of feeling sorry for Saul. And we don't make the mistake of thinking that David somehow deserves the treatment that he's getting 
from Saul. It's, it's easy to find the lines of right and wrong when we see these stories echo each other. And, and God, as he writes history, showing us some of the same beats so that we can see, oh yes, we've seen this. And here's how God works deliverance. Let's pick up in verse 18. So David fled and escaped and he went to Saul at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. Now it was told Saul take, uh, saying, take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time and they prophesied also. And then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Siku. And he sassed and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth in Ramah. Then the spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? David flees to Samuel's house at Ramah. It's where Samuel established one of the schools of the prophets. And David is fleeing to the highest authority in the land outside of Saul. The news gets back to Saul of where David has gone. So Saul sends his minions to go take David. But something funny happens when they get close to town. As Samuel stands teaching his seminary class, the school of the prophets, as he's prophesying to them, the tough guys hunting David get close and they start to prophesy also. The spirit of God is so powerful and so irresistible, this place so full of the spirit's power and presence that they can't help it, which frustrates Saul. And so he sends another group and the same thing happens. And he sends another group and the same thing happens each time. Surely at this point, Saul thinks, well, if you gotta do something right, you gotta do it yourself. So Saul goes to Ramah himself and when he draws near, he starts to prophesy like the rest. He strips naked and he lays on the ground all day and all night. And everyone asks again, is Saul also among the prophets? Well, we've seen this before, haven't we? Back at the very beginning of Saul's story, he was hunting something, wasn't he? He was hunting his father's donkeys. Now he's hunting David. In both times, in both the beginning and, and this instance, he comes to Ramah, the very same place. In both stories, he stops at a well and asks, where is Samuel? In both stories, he comes upon a band of prophets. He's filled with the spirit. He begins prophesying. And both times, someone asks, is Saul also among the prophets? But there's a significant difference between the two events. The first time, he's clothed by the spirit. The Bible says he's made into another man. He takes on the robe of the kingly office. What happens this time? This time he is stripped. He is divested of that robe and he lays on the ground naked. This is what's happened to the kingdom. This is what's happened to Saul's uh, role as king in Israel. The first time the question is asked, is Saul among the prophets? The answer is yes, Saul is among the prophets. Saul is the anointed. The second time it seems like it's almost a cynical, sarcastic question. Is, is Saul among the prophets? And the answer is no. He's prophesying because he's been overcome by the raw, irresistible force of God's Holy Spirit. But there's no, no, no evidence that there's been any change. There's no pattern of repentance 
or, or, or a, a development in his attitude, no fruit of humility. Again, in just a few verses, he's going to try to kill Jonathan. There's no, there's no fruit of repentance here. So before we get too hopeful over Saul prophesying, which I want to do, I'll say, oh, well, he's prophesying here. Remember that the Holy Spirit once caused a donkey to prophesy. And I am more confident that I will see that donkey in eternity than I am that I will see Saul in eternity. Uh, but that is the power of the Holy Spirit in just in, in, in moving Saul to prophesy on this day. In this study, we've been watching the tragic decline of Saul, and we've spent considerable time observing his lack of repentance, his refusal to listen to counsel, his mistreatment of his brothers, his, his, his compromises. But the one thing that I see highlighted here and that, that has been growing, and now I want to I wanna spend just a minute on it, is that role that envy played in Saul's hateful treatment of Jonathan and David. And this is important for us to ponder because, again, as I said at the beginning, I'm afraid we don't take the 10th commandment as seriously as we ought. We cultivate our own little gardens of discontentedness and our own little gardens of, of envy in ourselves. We have a little Saul in our hearts that we feed on a regular basis. Envy begins with looking at something that someone else has, gifts, opportunities, material blessings, status, influence, whatever it is, looking at it, and rather than responding with joy and gratitude that God has blessed this person, to be really truly happy for them, we respond with deep discontentedness. If I'm envious... When, when I see your joy or your wealth or your achievements, that makes me feel bad. And I compare myself to you and I question myself. And I question, I question my own gifts. I question who I am. And if I'm envious and I'm discontented, I see your achievements as evidence that I have failed. Because I buy into this terrible lie that there's only so much happiness to go around. There's only so much wealth to go around. Everything's a competition, and I've got to score more points than you. So if you scored a point, if you went out and killed a giant, and I didn't, well, that makes you better than me, and that makes me feel bad, and I'm discontent. That's the seed. The seed of envy is this, is this discontent, and if we don't kill it there, the stem and the branch grow. The stem and the branch, which is the desire to have that thing or that experience or that life for ourselves. Envy shows us where our priorities are. Envy shows us what is important to us. Envy exposes what we want more than anything else. Envy is like a yellow highlighter or a pink highlighter that shows there's your idol and there's your idol and that's what you want more than God and this is what you want more than righteousness and communion with God and his people. Envy points out those things that we value more than anything else. We, we don't envy righteousness, right? We only envy the things that are prohibited. We're only envying the things that God hasn't given us, things that aren't ours, things that are off limits. Discontent is the seed idolatrous desire grows out of that and then the plant bears the fruit of destruction the desire to take that from the other person or to damage it so that they can't enjoy it uh, envy is the spirit of the vandal you have a nice car and I don't 
I'm not going to take it from you. I'm just going to ruin it so you can't enjoy it. I'm going to scratch it or knock off a mirror. I'm going to hurt the thing that you have, and that makes me feel better. Because God's given you more than you deserve, you know. And I have less than I deserve, so I'm going to hurt you until you're as miserable as I am. You, we, we think that we might be incapable of murder. We think that, well, I've, I just can't ever imagine myself doing that. Was Cain incapable of murder? Were Joseph's brothers? Were the Pharisees? It doesn't start out as murder. It doesn't become murder overnight. But it gets there sure enough if it's left unchecked and uncountered. Ultimately, who are you acting like when you nurse a spirit of envy? There's no more envious being in the entire universe than Satan. He is the father of envy. Why does he hate God? He hates God because he's God. He, he's envious of God's position. He's envious of God's power. He's envious of God's goodness and the worship that God receives from his people. And Satan wants that worship so badly for himself, but he's never going to have it. And so he's just going to try to destroy it. He's at work sowing mayhem and chaos, turning people away from God toward himself, all out of pride and envy. And is that who you want to act like? No. So then what? Well, be content with what God has given you. Be faithful with the opportunities God has given you, unlike Saul. Saul wasn't faithful with any of the opportunities God had given him to either repent or to do right. Be truly happy for other people when God blesses them. Learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice. Learn how to express gratitude for other people. Look for reasons to say thank you and express gratitude toward God's people. How do you respond when somebody else receives a compliment? Does it make you feel slighted when someone else receives a compliment? Or do you rejoice with them? Or does it make you feel bad? Why, why does it make you feel bad? See, there it is. If, if you feel ugly when someone else receives a compliment or a benefit, that shows where your, where your heart is. Why does it make you feel bad when someone else gets a pat on the back? Stop looking at life like a competition. Stop looking at other people's gifts as if that means there's less for you. Stop looking at other people's praise and acclaim as if that means there's not enough for me now. There's not enough happiness left for me because they got it all. Stop comparing yourself with other people. There are only two things that happen when you do that. And neither of them are good. When you compare yourself to someone else, either you say, oh, wow, I'm so much better than they are. And your heart is, is swelled up in pride. Or you say, oh, look at that other person. I am awful and I am terrible, and I'm disgusting, and I'm worthless, and I hate them for having more or being better than I am. Stop comparing your kids to other people's kids. Stop comparing your wife to other people's wives, your husband to other people's husbands. Stop and rejoice in what God has given you and what he, how he has framed you and what, he, and what he's given your neighbor. Rejoice in that too. Learn thankfulness, and so imitate the Lord Jesus and reject Saul's attitude of envy that spawns all of this ugliness and destruction that he is wreaking on his own house. He is tearing down his own house and destroying himself through this envy. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to continue to guide us through the study, and now we do pray, strip from us these 
um, wicked behaviors that, that we see revealed in Saul. And we see how terrible and how ugly and how um, painful uh, these actions were, especially uh, as they were directed toward people he was in covenant to love and protect and guide and, and lead. So Father, uh, give us your Holy Spirit so that we might identify and confess these sins before you and that we might grow up and change. Father, we ask you to continue to give us your Holy Spirit every day to guide us into holiness and righteousness, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.